You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33, and then if you'd like to follow along with our PowerPoint notes in your bulletin, there's a QR code that you can scan if you have a smartphone or a tablet. You can download a QR uh, code reader and uh, access our Google Drive where we put all of our... um, Sunday sermon notes for you to follow along. There's certain apps where you can take notes on those as well. Um, So we want to make those available to you. You'll remember two weeks ago we've been talking specifically about um, the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. So we have these two brothers that were born to Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob, through prophecy, was revealed to be the chosen son, the one that would continue the Abrahamic covenant. He would be the one that would receive God's special blessing. He would be the one that eventually through his line, the Messiah would come through. And so um, Jacob and Esau grow up. There's uh, tension that develops. Uh, Jacob wanting to seize control of that blessing that was prophesied to him rather than waiting for God to give it to him. Uh, He seizes it through deception, um, takes advantage of Esau when they're younger and steals the birthright. And then later on in life, dresses up like his brother to steal the blessing from his dad. Uh, That causes Esau to want to kill Jacob, and so Jacob flees, and for 20 years he lives with his uncle Laban, and he gets married, and gets married again, and has kids, and then tries to escape from Laban because Laban is a hard boss to work for, um, takes advantage of the family uh, dynamic, and and really um, abuses Jacob from a business standpoint, and so he flees home. God protects him. Uh, God comes to Laban in a dream and forbids Laban from doing anything to harm Jacob. And uh, Jacob begins that trek back home. And there's this looming uh, encounter with Esau that at some point we're going to have to get together and work out our differences. And so Jacob, we said, uh, because God's working in his life, intentionally starts heading in the direction of Esau to uh, make reconciliation and uh, sends sends some of his servants ahead to try to um, pave the road for reconciliation only to find that Esau's already making his way towards Jacob with 400 men. Um, It looks like an army coming to attack Jacob and his people. And so Genesis chapter 32 tells us the story of uh, Jacob trying to come to grips with whether God's going to protect him or not. Um, And we saw God's special presence with Jacob that uh, God opens Jacob's eyes to see angels all around him and the angels are there to protect him. Um, We said that most of us aren't going to get that privilege Um, But because we see incidences in Scripture where angels are revealed to God's people, we can trust that while we don't see them, we can believe and trust that they are working with us and working around us and protecting us just like they did Old Testament saints because we worship the same God of the Old Testament here in the New Testament. Um, So Jacob had this special glimpse into the spiritual to see that God was working good for him. We saw uh, Jacob clinging to the promises of God and uh, ultimately wrestling with God as a, as a sign of sanctification as God is working on Jacob's character and making him into what eventually would be known as Israel, the man of God that would carry on the covenant line. And so um, we saw all these, these things in Genesis chapter 32. Our application from two weeks ago was to remember that God is always working around us. So don't lose sight of the spiritual, that even though we don't see God uh, in human form today with us, Uh, like Jacob did wrestling with um, God there in that evening. Just because we don't see angels around us at work, we can trust that they are, and we shouldn't lose sight of the spiritual. As we weather storms this week coming up, as we face trials and tribulations and temptations, 
we can trust that God is right there with us, that God is fighting with us, and that God is working good for us. We need to preach promises of God to ourselves. We said that Jacob, when he prays to God and prays for protection, he's ultimately reminding God of promises that God already knows that he's made. We said that ultimately it's a tool for him to basically preach to himself that I need to be reminded of these promises. God doesn't need to be reminded of the promises that he makes to us. We do, Um, which is one of the reasons that we sing on Sunday mornings, right? The songs that we sing reflect the promises of God. God doesn't need to hear our voices to be reminded of what he's supposed to do in our life. We do. We come out of a week and we get prepared for another week and we need to be reminded that one day we are gonna be gathered with all tribes, nations, and tongues praising God forever in heaven. Uh, in complete joy and uh, complete assurance that we are with him for eternity. And so we preach promises of God to ourselves because we're prone to forget. And so last week we came into Genesis chapter 33, and I want to draw your attention there once again, uh, the responsibility of believers to reconcile. And so I'm going to recap uh, real quick as we get into this, uh, some of the points we made from last week, just for those that Uh, weren't with us and maybe haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast so that it will give context to the remainder of that sermon that we did not finish last week. So in Genesis chapter 33, verse 1, if you've got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to follow along with me there. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you, Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that uh, that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Sire. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sire. Last week's summary sentence, and this will also be our summary summary sentence for today. And then we've got our kids summary for those that are following along as well. Believers, having been reconciled to God, are to pursue reconciliation with others as conflicts arise, demonstrating the same forgiveness and restoration they have enjoyed themselves. Okay, so ultimately last week we talked about the fact that as believers, we've been reconciled to God, right? He's forgiven us of a multitude of sins, um, both when we confessed Jesus, he, he forgave us of our past sins, the present sins that we were involved in and entwined in, and he also forgives us in advance of the sins that were to come. Okay, so a multitude of sins, a multitude of forgiveness that's been extended to us. 
as enemies of God, um, as rebels uh, of God's purposes, God extends forgiveness and love to us and allows us to be reconciled back to him. It's the, the message that we've been unpacking ever since we got into Genesis 1, 2, and 3 about two years ago. That, that God created man to give glory to him. Man rebelled and, and distrusted God when Satan came and tempted him to eat of the fruit. And ever since then, God has been reconcil- reconciling the, the, the offspring of Adam and Eve back to him. Um, and so many of us in this room are experiencers of that. We have experienced the reconciliation extended to us by Christ's work. Okay, so because we've had a multitude of sins forgiven to us, the Bible calls us to demonstrate the same type of forgiveness to others in our life as conflicts arise, that we demonstrate the gospel, the, the forgiveness that we've experienced. We live that out as we extend forgiveness to other people. Okay, for our kids, because God forgives us, we are called to forgive others. And as we looked at this passage, we highlighted some points last week that first of all, Christ appeases God for the believer. In this uh, chapter 32 and 33, we've seen that Jacob is very nervous to approach Esau. He's not sure whether Esau's going to accept him or not. Um, and so he builds this argument basically by presenting gifts to Esau. He gives all these animals to Esau and and sends them in advance and basically wants to earn the favor of Esau before he approaches him. And there's this big question mark, will Esau accept me and I won't know until we meet face to face. And we tied that to our experiences with the gospel that every other religion teaches that we have to build our case and basically send that before us in hopes that God accepts us one day when we stand before him in the afterlife. So basically, life is about building up good works and doing good things and and trying to earn God's favor and trying to account for all of our wrongdoings. And we basically send that ahead of us and hope that when we die one day, we stand before God and God says, you've done enough, enter into heaven. That's what every other religion teaches. It's this mindset that Jacob has before Esau. I don't know if he's gonna accept me, so let me send as much possible good ahead of me as possible then hopes that he'll accept me. And the gospel teaches contrary to that. The gospel teaches that Christ has already gone before us and that Christ has earned perfection for us and that we don't have to wonder through life whether God will accept us or not. The joy of being a Christian is that we know we don't stand condemned any longer, that there is no condemnation for the believer and we can live in joy and acceptance right now knowing that Jesus stands as our acceptance, that Jesus stands as our reason for being accepted into the presence of God. Okay, Um, so we said that, you know, in in seeing the gospel in this story, that unlike Jacob having to appease Esau, God has already been appeased by Christ. We then talked about human reconciliation being a work of God, that the peace between Jacob and Esau is ultimately what God does in this story. Remember in 32, chapter 32, verse 11, Jacob prays for God's protection. Esau's heart is changed and he accepts Jacob here. Right? We see Esau running to embrace his brother. And remember, we highlighted the fact that the last time we heard from Esau in chapter 27, he says, I want to kill my brother. My brother has deceived me for the last time. I am ready to kill him. And now all of a sudden, he's hugging and kissing on him. And, and where have you been? And introduce me to your family. This is completely a work of God because Esau's not a believer. Esau's not a Christian in New Testament terms. We know that from the book of Hebrews, and we'll hit that verse here in just a few minutes. Esau's not a believer, and so this is a supernatural work for sure. God changing his heart briefly for this time to accept his brother who he's been very angry with. 
We also highlighted last week that believers take responsibility for reconciliation. That as believers, we don't get to justify not pursuing reconciliation with somebody for fear that it might not go well, right? Like Jacob doesn't try to hide from Esau. He doesn't try to go a different way. He doesn't justify and say, well, I'd like to make things right with Esau, but he may kill me and my family if we go see him. So we've confessed it to God. We've made things right with God, but we're gonna just let things be as they are with Esau. No, like he hits it head on. He says, I'm gonna go make things right with my brother. And it may cost me my life, but I've got to do this. If I'm going to continue to be the man of God that that I'm supposed to be, I've got to go and face this and make it right, whatever the consequences may be. We said that believers always have the responsibility to initiate. In Matthew chapter five, uh, Jesus tells us that believers are called to pursue reconciliation when they're at fault. Matthew five tells us when we know that we've done something to somebody else, it's our responsibility to go make it right. We're to go and to confess it. We're to go and to ask for reconciliation and forgiveness. We're to go make it right. And oftentimes we find out that we've done something to somebody through somebody else telling us, right? Sometimes we're not aware of it. And then somebody comes to us and tells us, hey, so-and-so is mad at you because you did this. And the flesh and the pride in us tells us to ignore that. And that's their problem. That's their, their fault for taking it that way. The Bible says if you know somebody is upset with you, that you've done something to them, you go and make it right. But it also tells us that if somebody else is at fault, if somebody else has done something to us, that we're supposed to go and make it right. That if we know that somebody has sinned against us, Matthew 18 talks about us going to that individual and calling that sin out and rebuking that sin so that they can be brought to repentance and so reconciliation can happen between us and them. Proper attitudes are needed. We see humility and repentance and forgiveness in chapter 33. And we see God bringing restoration to potentially one of the worst situations uh, possible in regards to reconciliation. This is a, a brother who wants to murder his brother and God has brought them back together. Bad situation. And it points to the fact that God can resolve any situation that we find ourselves in. When conflict is there, if we follow the prescriptions in Scripture to make reconciliation, God goes with us, with his angels, as he did with Jacob, to help bring about reconciliation. Okay, so a lot of reconciliation talk last week. We'll continue that discussion as we move forward. But as we get into new material here, uh, number four in our notes, where we would have picked up or where we would have continued last week, number four, unbelievers need more than good works. Unbelievers need more than good works. And for our kids, just because somebody is good, it doesn't mean they are saved. Unbelievers need more than good works. Tying this to reconciliation. You'll remember we read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 last week, where we're called to a ministry of reconciliation, right? As Christians, once we've been reconciled to God, the reason that God leaves us here and doesn't take us home to be with him immediately is he leaves us here to be extensions of his reconciliation, that we're to call other people to reconciliation to God. Okay, so we have this job, this task, where we are supposed to go and make other people aware of their sin and their need for Jesus. Okay, and so we certainly have to be forgiving people if we're going to represent the, the all-time greatest forgiver. 
Like we have to demonstrate as best we can in our fallenness and, and, and as we wait upon glorification for Jesus to come back and rid us of our sin completely, we have to be representers of what it looks like to forgive if people are gonna hear our message of forgiveness, that God wants to forgive them of their sins, okay? But it necessitates us understanding who really needs reconciliation because if we're not careful, unbelievers can deceive us with their goodness, And so we can go about life, and and there's people in your life that are like this that you forget aren't believers. You you forget it because you see their life and, and, and you grow numb to the fact that they're in separation from God because from human standards, they look great. Right? Like they make good decisions and and they're good human beings and they demonstrate care for others. I mean, these are potentially people that, that are um, raising money and funds for organizations. I mean, they just pour their life into helping other people. And you look at it and you find out that the organization, it's not really a Christian organization, right? But it's, a, it's an organization that helps people. And they commit time and energy. There's, there's goodness on the outside, right? There's this, there's this understanding that, that I'm supposed to help other people. And we'll talk in a minute where that comes from. But they're, they're, not, they're not believers, right? They're, they're good people, but they're not believers. And, and, and they don't confess Jesus as Lord. And, and that's what Romans 10 talks about, right? That, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that, that God raised him from the dead, then we can be saved. Not if we give a lot of time and energy to good things, then we can cancel out our debt of wrong. So it's important for us to, to be mindful of who needs reconciliation when we talk about reconciliation to God. So we've talked last week a lot about reconciliation between our human conflict relationships. Now we're talking more about reconciliation to God. Unbelievers need more than good works. Let's go back to the text here, and we'll unpack that statement. Um, If you're taking notes with us, number one, God's common grace is not assurance of his favor. God's common grace is not assurance of his favor. What do I mean by that? Well, in chapter 33, verse 8, Esau and Jacob have hugged and kissed and cried it out. We're we're brothers again. We're friends again. And then Esau says, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Esau makes this statement. He says, I have enough without Jacob's gift. Meaning that Esau has prospered since the last time Jacob was with him. Remember, Jacob stole from from Esau, from Esau's Esau's perspective. We know that the birthright and the blessing was never intended to belong to to Esau, that that God had already promised that to, to Jacob. But from Esau's vantage point, this was taken unjustly. Right, like Jacob stepped in and, and stole and deceived and uh, dressed up like him, and so in Esau's mind, what I was supposed to have has been taken from me. Remember, Esau goes back to his dad and says, "How about a second blessing? Like, come up with something else that that can be given to me." And it was basically like a curse. Like it was, I don't, I don't have anything left to give. I've already given it to Jacob. Like Jacob has taken that from you. But what we've seen here is in the past twenty years. Esau has certainly prospered, prospered enough to where this exorbitant gift from Jacob is, re- is going to be rejected by Esau. Esau says, I don't need this. I don't need this. Again, this is an unbeliever who is caught up in the material things and not the spiritual, right? Because we said Esau forfeited the spiritual 
for a, for a bowl of soup, right? He's short-sighted. He's short-sighted. And even for a man who is short-sighted and a lover of the things of this world, he looks at his brother and says, brother, I have prospered. Like, I don't need to take from you. I don't need to take anything from you. The man who had things taken from him says, I don't need to take anything from you. This is God's grace that oftentimes is extended to both believer and unbeliever. We call it common grace, right? Common grace. God takes care of all of his creation and allows his creation to prosper oftentimes, whether they're a believer or not. Now, it's, it's, you could speculate that according to um, Genesis chapter 27, that, that Esau has prospered not necessarily in the best means possible, because it says in chapter 27, verse 29, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who cursed you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is the, the blessing that's given to, um, to Jacob, right? Like everyone's gonna follow you, but look what's given to Esau down in 39. Then Isaac, his father answered and said to him, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Isaac says that in order for you to prosper, it's going to have to be through the sword. There's going to be fighting and turmoil. You're going to have to seize things from other nations and other peoples, potentially, to prosper. So while Jacob has been very faithful to take care of Laban's flocks and to cultivate the ground, it's possible that Esau has been ripping other people off and stealing from them and attacking other nations. Okay, but however so, he has prospered and God has overseen that, that, that prospering um, and protects it moving forward. We're, we'll see probably later in Genesis where God prohibits Israel from taking from Esau. That this, is, this is Esau's land. The land of Sire is Esau's and we're not gonna take that and give it to Jacob's descendants. So, so God has allowed him to prosper. We call this common grace. Um, there's, there's a couple of ways that we see common grace in Scripture. First of all, in how God cares for his creation. In Psalm chapter 145, verse 9. Psalm chapter 145, verse 9, it says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Right? The fact that anybody is allowed to wake up and live today is God's grace and mercy. The fact that any unbeliever is allowed to continue in sin and not receive immediate wrath is God's grace. And it's God's mercy and it's God's long suffering. He's good to all, the psalmist says. His mercy is over all that he has made. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. It says, um, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Right? God provides for both believers and unbelievers. He allows the rain to come to them. He allows their crops to grow, uh, whether they believe in him or not. In Acts chapter 14, um, another similar passage in verse 17, uh, Paul talking about the, um, the witness of God through creation, he says, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Paul's preaching this message and he says, 
God has been good to you and you've been an enemy of his. And he's left himself witness through creation. The fact that he's allowed you to prosper, the fact that he's allowed you to come to the point of satisfaction, satisfies your hearts with food and gladness. That's where Esau's at. Esau has been satisfied. He tells Jacob, I don't need anything else. Keep your stuff. I have prospered. I have exactly what I need. And yet he doesn't have what he needs because it doesn't drive him to the source of that prospering. Doesn't drive him to build an altar at the end of this passage, right? Jacob's the one that builds the altar. Jacob's the one that's confessing and worshiping uh, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and who is becoming the God of Jacob. That's where Jacob's response differs from Esau. Esau says, we both have prospered greatly, brother. You keep your stuff, I'll keep mine because I don't need any of your stuff. But Esau's gonna walk away from this and give no glory to God for it. Jacob's gonna run and build altars and, and, and praise God for his provision. God's common grace is not assurance of his favor. God's also very good to restrain the world from the amount of sin that could take place. So not only does God give care to creation, not only does he show goodness to all of creation and how he cares for creation, but he also restrains the world from the amount of sin that's possible, right? The amount of people that are on this earth that are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that have not been made into new creations, could be allowed to run rampant with their sinfulness. And yet Romans 2 says that God has built every individual with an understanding of right and wrong. So even the individual that's born to sin, born an enemy of God, who wants nothing to do with God, does not want to submit to the authority of God, Romans 1 says, would rather worship the the creation rather than the creator. Even that person who wants to give himself to his, his sinful desires still can't get rid of the right and wrong um, voice inside of him that holds him back from being as completely evil as he possibly could be. That's God's goodness. That's God's goodness to the unbeliever and to the believer that he, with, he withstrains sin. He restrains it. He doesn't allow it to go forward as much as it could. He builds inside of us this right and wrong understanding so that even the unbeliever who doesn't have the law, Romans 2 says, by nature tries to keep the law, tries to do good things at times. That's God's goodness. Romans chapter 13, verse one, God gives us um, authorities in our life. He gives government to help restrain sin as well. So God's very good. He demonstrates common grace. But just because an individual has prospered here on this earth, right? We talk about God working good for his children. Just because somebody can claim that good things have happened to them, God's been good and shown favor to that individual because we see God as the source of it, doesn't allow us to look at somebody and say, just because they've prospered, it means that they're a believer. All right, we have to be careful Unbelievers need more than good works. God's God's common grace is not assurance of his favor. But secondly, man's moral behavior is not assurance of spiritual life. Man's moral behavior is not assurance of spiritual life. Esau shows love to Jacob, and he reluctantly receives Jacob's gift, and he offers to accompany and protect them on their journey. We said last week, Esau's the better brother in this chapter. He just is. He's the one that's been wronged. He's the one that extends forgiveness. He's the one that, that, that embraces Jacob. 
He's the one that, that uh, comes and initiates the reconciliation. He's the one that forgives. He's the one that says, keep your stuff. I don't need it. And it's only after Jacob just insists and insists and insists that he take it that he says, okay, I'm going to take it, not because I need it, but because apparently you need to give it up to feel better about yourself. And then he offers to take him back and protect him the whole way because he's got 400 men and Jacob's got some women and some children and a bunch of animals. He says, I'll protect you and take you back. And Jacob says, no. And he says, well, let me leave you some people that can protect you. No. I mean, Esau's the good brother here. Esau's the guy that that wants to do the right thing. And despite his exemplary behavior, he falls short of God's glory. Because if if, if it's up to us, we describe Esau as as a forgiving brother, as an understanding brother. Based on what we've read about him, he, he got angry, but seems to have gotten over that anger. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, reminds us that there are things that we don't know about Esau. Because it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau's a guy who never figured out the spiritual part. He's a guy who remains unholy, who remains sexually impure. He's a guy who never figured out the spiritual. He prospered physically, and he's a pretty good guy for those that knew him, possibly. At least in this case, Jacob's praising the name of Esau like, like, I'm, I'm, I'm astonished that you're willing to forgive this. It's like seeing God when I see your face right now. Esau's an unbeliever who needed more than good works because his moral behavior is not, is not an assurance of his salvation. In my notes, I put the story of Esau in Genesis 33 reminds me that unsaved people can be some of the best people you'll ever meet. Esau is a great big brother in this chapter, but it doesn't minimize his need for the gospel. And I meant to put this on the slide and I forgot, so let me, let me say it to you uh, slowly. Esau doesn't have to be wholly evil, holy W-H-O-L-L-Y. He doesn't have to be as evil as he can possibly be to be wholly lost, okay? He is wholly lost, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is fully lost, but he doesn't have to be fully evil to be fully lost. We can see glimpses of goodness in Esau. He's got a, he's got a, a, a conscience. He's got a, a law in his heart that tells him right and wrong. And at times, he's going he's gonna to live that way. At times, he's going to do the right thing. At times, he's going to extend grace and forgiveness. The Bible says he's an unholy man who, who cared nothing for the spiritual. And that's what defines Esau from the heavenly perspective. His moral behavior is not an indicator of his spiritual life. Esau, and, and this is true for unbelievers today, our coworkers and our family members don't have to be fully or wholly evil to be fully lost. See, I think sometimes our theology gets shaped when we get out in the real world and we're experiencing real life people and we, and we start to justify and say, I know that person doesn't believe in Jesus, but I just really have a hard time thinking God could, could punish them. And, and that hell is in their future. 
I just can't imagine that being a possibility because I know them and I know the goodness in them and I know the, the things that they do. And all of a sudden we've deviated from the gospel and we're saying some people confess Jesus and others can slide in the back door because they're not fully evil. And that's Esau here. And yet the Bible says he's unholy. He's, he's not what he's supposed to be. He's not forgiven. He's not spiritually alive. Why is this important for us? The implication for us is that a person's moral character must not minimize their need for the gospel in our minds. A person's moral character must not minimize their need for the gospel in our minds. Going back to 2 Corinthians 5, if we're ministers of reconciliation, we can't use worldly standards to to assess spiritual life. We can't use worldly standards. Here's the danger in this, is if I believe that one's moral character can potentially excuse their sin, then I don't, I don't see the, the pressing need to get the gospel to them. I don't get the pressing need out there that they've got to repent and turn to Jesus. See, I walk away from my interaction with them and I think, man, that, that person, they're good. Like surely they, I don't think they would say that they know Jesus, but I think maybe they do because of the things that I see him doing. Like un- unbelievers, lost people, like people that, that are described about going to hell, that's not, that's not my family member, that's not my friend, like they're, they're a good person, that my coworker gets it. Maybe not the way I get it, but they at least get some of it. And it minimizes the, the urgency for the gospel. And, and we minimize their need for it because we think, eh, they're, they're, they're good, they're, they're, they're moral, they're, they're doing some good things. The message that 2 Corinthians 5 talks about is a a reconciliation message, and it's forgiveness of sins through Christ. So so how do we know if someone's really saved? If if we can't use moral character as a a full-on proof, how do we know if someone's genuinely saved? Um, We've been working through with our men um, a catechism uh, on on, um, Tuesday mornings. We've been writing a catechism that we're going to use at Trinity this year. Catechism is a question-answer teaching tool, okay? So I've been asking the men in our church questions, and then we've been coming up with simplified answers to those theological questions. And Tyson and I, I don't think we actually got this one to our men. We did this as a Bible department at Trinity. But the question is, how does a person know that they're saved? How can a person know that they're saved, and how can we potentially know if somebody's saved or not? And if you, you go to First John, which is the, the, the book or the, the letter that is written John says, so that you might know that you have eternal life. According to 1 John, believers can know that they are saved by measuring their beliefs about Jesus with what the Bible teaches and by faithfully loving God and others through obedience to his commands. Okay, so we're not gonna dismiss moral character completely. We're gonna say that, yeah, if you're truly saved, God's changing you. And you're going to see the fruit of that salvation. You're going to see that working itself out in the way that you obey God's commands and love other people. But I think some key elements in this statement is, first of all, people have to believe Jesus, right? Like just obeying commands doesn't save you. There's a belief about Jesus that's necessary. And it has to measure with what the Bible teaches about Jesus because there's plenty of people out there that'll tell you they believe Jesus and they believe in Jesus but it's not the same Jesus. They've distorted him, 
right? There's religions that have distorted him. There's other people that haven't read their Bibles that have created a Jesus in their mind that doesn't exist. It's the Jesus they want to be out there. First John says, you have to believe what the Bible says about Jesus. And if you truly believe what the Bible says about Jesus, then you're gonna love God and you're gonna obey his commands. And a lot of his commands are focused on loving other people and forgiving other people. And I think what's missing here for Esau is that he loves his brother, he's forgiving of his brother, but it's not motivated by right belief. There's no spiritual connection for it. He's not doing it because he's submitted to King Jesus. He's doing it because there's a law in his heart. And so it's, it's right for him to forgive Jacob. It's right for him to extend forgiveness, but it doesn't save him. It doesn't save him. He's not submitted. He's not submitted to, to God. He's not submitted to the God that Jacob's submitted to. So as we interact with coworkers and family members, it has to come back to the fact that if they don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter what their life looks like. They're lost. They're lost and they need the gospel. And they can't be reconciled to God until they come to grips with the fact that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose again. Unbelievers need more than good works. And we have to remember that if we're gonna be real ministers of reconciliation. Number five, believers need more than justification. Believers need more than justification. For our kids, once we get saved, Jesus wants to make us good. And here's what I mean by we need more than justification. I'm not trying to add to what salvation looks like, okay? Justification means that God declares us declares us in right relationship to his law. Okay, so we, we're born and we sin and we, we disobey God's commands. And the only hope that we have is for those commands to be forgiven. But the Bible also says we have to keep his commands to, to, to be with him. And that's where Jesus comes in and Jesus dies and forgives us of the sins that we've committed. But he also lives a perfect life so that that righteousness can be given to us. Okay, so justification is us being declared right we're not sinful and we're perfect now because of what Jesus has done, okay? Yeah, he took the one who knew no sin and made him sin for us so that we could be made into right relationship with God. But what I mean by believers need more than justification is that when we get saved, we don't automatically become great people. The Holy Spirit indwells us, but we're still sinful and we're still gonna fail and First John talks about the fact that if we say we have no sin, then we're liars. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. See, God doesn't just save us and then stop there. He starts a work and he finishes the work, Philippians 1.6 tells us. Okay, so believers get saved and they're justified, but then we move into that phase of sanctification where God says, I'm gonna make you into a, a, uh, a holy individual. I'm gonna make you into somebody that looks like my son, Jesus. And it's not gonna be an overnight thing. And why is that important? Because when we talk about Jacob here, Jacob's name change, remember we said in 32 that he gets his name changed to Israel because Jacob means deceiver. And it's really all about a character change. Like God wants to make him different. He wants to change his sinful behavior into righteous behavior. He wants to, to create him um, new. Jacob's name change and his character change is more prophetic than descriptive. Meaning God kind of looks ahead and says, your name's Israel now because by the end of this whole thing, you're gonna act like Israel and not Jacob anymore. 
But for a while, you're going to act like Jacob a lot still because you're a work in progress. You're a work in progress. In my notes, I put, uh, Jacob remains a work in progress just like believers today and should be viewed with the end in mind. Because we look at this chapter and we say, man, Jacob, like he doubts God a lot, even after he sees angels and even after he wrestles with God the night before, he's still doubting a lot. Um, He praises God here in this chapter, which is great, like nod to Jacob, like check mark for Jacob, like he he does something right here. It says in Genesis, um, Genesis chapter 33, verse 5. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the woman, the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. In verse 11, um, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. Right? God, God's getting the praise and the glory from Jacob here. But Jacob shows favoritism because he demonstrates that he's not sure about the outcome because in chapter 33, verses one through three, he lines his family up based on value to him, right? Like he puts the ugly sister and her kids up front and keeps the pretty sister and her kids in the back so that if Esau does try to start killing, the ones that he likes the most won't get killed first and maybe they can escape. So there's still this doubt as to whether this is gonna turn out the way that that God's promising that it'll turn out. Um, He's deceitful in how he disengages from Esau, right? Like he lies here at the end of the chapter. Once again, he is deceiving Esau. Esau says, brother, come on back to my place and, and I'll go with you and take care of you. And Jacob says, no, no, go ahead. Like, we're, we're slow. I got my wife and my kids and the animals are kind of slow. You got 400 men and, and, you know, you guys are moving at your own pace and we'll just hold you back. Like, go ahead. We'll catch up with you at some point. And then, no, let me leave some people with you. No, no, no. Like, go ahead. Like, once we kind of get there, we'll get there. And then it says, like, he went the opposite direction. Like, he's not going to be with Esau. Maybe he fears that Esau will wake up and realize, bad move by me to forgive you, like I do want all your stuff. But he's like, we're not going with Esau. But he tells Esau he's going, right? Like, there's still this deception, and, and, and we're still referencing him as Jacob, right? Like, he got a name change in 32, and what's Moses calling him as he writes? Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. In fact, for the rest of his life in Genesis, so as we continue to study this, he'll be called Jacob 45 times. He'll be called Israel 23 times. What that tells me is that he's a work in progress. He's Jacob a lot of times. He's still a sinful guy. He's Israel a lot of times. Like you're gonna see glimpses where he, he really steps up and, and the spirit is moving inside of him and he's becoming the man of God that he's supposed to be. Then we'll see him be like Jacob again sometimes. Right? He's not Jacob 45 times and then 23 times for the rest of his life. He's Israel. It's all mixed in because he's a work in progress. He acts like Jacob and Israel moving forward. He's a picture of the flesh and the spirit waging war. It's the same war that we face today in our, in our own flesh and our own spirit. So we said Esau doesn't have to be wholly evil or fully evil for him to be fully lost or wholly lost. The statement about Jacob, Jacob does not have to be wholly righteous or fully righteous to be counted holy and righteous. Jacob doesn't have to be perfect for God to then declare him holy and righteous, right? He's declared righteous because it's never gonna be about whether Jacob receives or earns perfection or not. It's about Jesus's perfection. And don't stop and say, well, Jesus hasn't even really come on the scene here. 
Because Romans 3 says God in his forbearance knew Jesus was coming and he passed over the sins knowing that he was going to pour out his wrath on Jesus. Jacob doesn't have to be fully perfect to be counted holy and righteous. Number two, we must continue to fight for spiritual growth rather than growing content with previous advancements. Jacob has experienced angels, he's been with God, and yet he continues to lack faith when needed. This is a reminder to us as believers, we have to keep fighting for spiritual growth because there's gonna continue to be doubts that have to be, have to be fought off in our life. All right, so believers need more than justification. Why is this important? And uh, this is long, and I give you a little summary here so you don't have to write all this down. A person's sinful failure does not mean they should be condemned as an unbeliever. Rather, they should be examined by the ongoing gospel message of seeing sin in their life, confessing sin in their life, and moving forward with a spirit of repentance. Here's where I think if we're not careful, we stand as judges who say, because you've done this, you must not be a believer. Like, you can't be a believer and do this. Because if you read Romans chapter seven, there's this mindset here where the guy's like, I know what I'm supposed to do and I don't do it. And I know the things that I shouldn't do and yet I do them. And then Romans eight says, there's no condemnation for those that are truly in Christ Jesus, okay? So you've got somebody who's, who's still waging war with sin um, and failing at times, but there's no condemnation for that individual because God is working in their life. And here's the key component of this, because we're not going to be comfortable because scripture is not comfortable calling somebody a believer that continues in sin. So lest we think that you can be saved and just continue into the old pattern of your life and it be okay, that's not okay. The ongoing gospel message, what I mean by that is that the gospel continues to work itself out in our life. And the way that it does that is if somebody's truly a believer, they keep seeing sin in their life and they keep confessing sin in their life and they keep moving forward with a spirit of repentance. That's 1 John. First John, that, that I, I'm not gonna deny that I still have sin. I'm gonna confess my sin and I'm gonna repent of my sin. Well, to kind of summarize that, it means that the person's admitting sin, confessing sin, and repenting from sin. Well, what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to repent? And this is a, um, one of the other questions that we have in our catechism, what is repentance? So it shouldn't say implication, it should say what is repentance, and I forgot to change that. Repentance is a confession of heartfelt sorrow. Okay, so there's a brokenness about sin and there's a desire to renounce sin, to be done with it, with a commitment to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ while continually battling sin in one's life. That means that somebody can repent of a specific sin. Somebody, especially when we talk about reconciliation, I can come and confess to you. Let's say you're mad at me for something. I can come and confess it to you and, and tell you I want to repent of it and a week later do the exact same thing to you and be broken over it all again, you know, once again and come back to you and repent of it and, and, and ask for your forgiveness. Because Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, I think we hit this passage lastly. Luke chapter 7, he said, he said to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Which is nice to know that Jesus is, is, is not expecting us to get to a point where temptations don't come. 
right? Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through who they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. All right, and so we're all fearful of the individual who just keeps confessing and and saying, yeah, I'm a sinner and forgive me and forgive me. And I think the element here is that there's a, as a, as a heartfelt sorrow over it. There's a brokenness over it and there's an admittance of it and a confession of it. And I think what's, what's also found here in Scripture is that there's a commitment to walk differently moving forward. There's a, there's a desire to fight against it, right? Like, I'm not content to do this to you again. I'm sorry that I did it to you again, and I know I did it to you last week as well. Here's the steps that I'm taking to make sure that I don't keep doing this to you. That's what repentance looks like. It's a, it's a brokenness over the sin. There's an admittance and a confession consistent with 1 John. There's a desire to walk differently, to battle that sin, to fight against it. Um, and to not tolerate it in one's life. So unbelievers oftentimes can be very good people, but they need the gospel, right? They need the gospel because good works aren't getting them there. Good works don't earn favor in, in the sight of God, okay? It's not like Jacob who can just keep ushering good things to Esau, please find favor with me, here's a bunch of good things. It's not how the gospel works, okay? Um, or believers, they're saved, but they're a work in progress. So we can't be so quick to jump and say that person's not a believer because they're doing this or because they're doing this. We need to go to them and we need to, we need to, to call them back to repentance and to call them to confess sin in their life um, and, and not expect perfection out of them. The, 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 the work has been started and the work will continue. And Jacob was a work in progress and he keeps getting called Jacob and Jacob and Jacob and sometimes Israel and back to Jacob. But we could easily dismiss Jacob here in this chapter and say, Esau's the believer, Jacob's not. And yet we know that's contrary to what Scripture continues to reveal to us in Genesis. Two application points for us. This one was from last week. We should pursue reconciliation with those we have wronged and those who have wronged us, realizing that restoration gives increased opportunity for praise to God. For our kids, when we forgive others, God receives glory. Okay, so if I'm truly a believer, it's my job when I've wronged somebody or when they've wronged me to pursue reconciliation with that person. And I don't know how many of you took, took the opportunity to do that this week. You know, last week I challenged you that if there were situations in your life that you identified and said, okay, there, this is a broken relationship, maybe within the church, um, and it may be somebody that doesn't even know that they've done something to you. And so you're the only one clued into it. That I challenged you last week to pursue reconciliation with anybody that you know you have broken fellowship with. Um, for me, last week when I was preaching, and, and I hadn't thought about this prior to, to teaching last week, so in all my studies in preparation for last week, God had not really convicted me of this. But as I was preaching, I mean, the Holy Spirit just, just hit me really hard and really began to break my heart and convict me about a, uh, a situation outside the church, a, a friendship of mine, that I've allowed bitterness to, to be a hindrance between our friendship. 
And I'm not sure that individual had really any idea. Um, and, and I confessed that to him yesterday. And, and I included some people in this church in on that because I've allowed my bitterness to spill over into conversations with people here in this church. And I've been a poor example of pursuing reconciliation um, and allowing really actions that are not sinful, just unmet expectations that I have towards our friendship to allow me to be bitter. And I confess to this individual that I, I text you less, I think about you less, I pray for you less, and it's all due to my pride and my, my own, um, just my own sin. Uh, and I confessed this yesterday, and I, and I sent an email to him, and I said, the reason I'm sending you an email is because I need to confess this to other people as well. And I'd lose something in the translation of trying to call every single person and give them the same message. Um, so I want you to know that as your pastor, there, there are times as I'm preaching, the application's as much for me as it is for you. And I, and I want to model that to you. And so I share that with you, not to, not to toot my horn and say, I did it, did you do it? But to let you know that, that this really necessitates you stepping back and, and if the Holy Spirit's convicting you, not dismissing this, okay? Because I tried to dismiss it this week. And it wasn't until yesterday when I knew I was going to have to come back and, and really figure out exactly, you know, finalize my notes for today. And I was brought back under that conviction. And I went ahead and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to send the email. And, and he probably has no clue that, that this is coming. And I told him, I said, I wish I didn't have to send this. And I wish I'd handled my pride and flesh better to where this wasn't necessary. But it is necessary. And I've made you look bad in the eyes of other people. And, and I need you to forgive me. Um, and so I, I challenge you if there's, if there's, relationships in your life that need to be reconciled, we, we can't move past this chapter and not handle that, especially if it's within the church. You know, there's maybe uh, an opportunity for it to take a little bit longer outside the church, but within this, the, within this church family, if there's, if there's things that need to be reconciled, please move forward and do that. And then number two, we should measure those around us by their need for the gospel, avoiding the comfort that good works might offer and the condemnation that unresolved sin might encourage. Meaning that we're gonna, we're gonna, as ministers of reconciliation, we're going to use the gospel as our standard. And so when people are good people that we know don't believe in Jesus, we're going to, we're going to keep pushing gospel. And when we're around people that we know believe in Jesus and confess Jesus and are still a work in progress, we're not going to condemn them and um, not extend uh, appropriate forgiveness when repentance is present. Right? Like we're going to rebuke and we're going to call to uh, confession and repentance. And when those elements are present, we're going to receive those people and accept that repentance and that forgiveness uh, is extended to, uh, to them by us. So, number one, if there's relationships that need to be reconciled, I encourage you to pursue it. Number two, in your relationships around you, I want to encourage you to use the gospel as the standard. And don't grow lazy because you believe that their good works maybe means that they're saved. And don't grow judgmental and condemn those that are still much like Jacob, a work in progress that need to be called to repentance. Now, if repentance isn't present, then absolutely the salvation needs to be questioned. Um, Matthew 18 says that if you continue to go to this individual and they don't turn from their sin, that they're to be removed from your fellowship and removed from you. Um, because they're not going the same direction as you. But as that person continues to demonstrate repentance and confession, we're to receive them, and we're to help them fight against sin. All right? Um, Any questions that you want to ask from last week or this week? Um, There's been a lot 
communicated and um, any unique situation to you that maybe you wanted to ask about or you're wondering about before we pray together. All right, let's pray. Lord, again, we we thank you for this chapter, and we thank you for reconciliation. Uh, We thank you that Jacob modeled um, to us the the need to uh, pursue reconciliation when fellowship has been broken, even when it's not easy, even when we don't know exactly how it's going to turn out, even when we don't know how the other person is going to respond. It's on us to come and to admit fault. And God, we thank you that Jacob is a great example of that as he comes and um, takes the humble road in admitting his faults before Esau. God, I thank you that um, in, in our efforts to come to you, that you don't demand that we bring a, um, a large gift that you're going to measure and determine if it's acceptable or not for us to enjoy you forever. Um, that instead you've, you've gone behind us and you've brought Jesus on the scene and uh, Jesus has already done everything necessary. And so as individuals who were born on this earth and began to grow and develop and we fell into this mindset of thinking that in order to uh, earn your favor, we had to be good. We're thankful that you've already put in place a plan that, that allows us to be good in your sight because Jesus is good for us. And so, Father, we praise you and thank you that our sins have been forgiven. For those of us that are believers here, our sins have been forgiven. Your wrath has been poured out on the cross. and Jesus stood in our place. And, Father, we are so thankful that his perfect righteousness has been applied to our account if we believe in him. Father, I'm thankful that you start a work in us and you guarantee to finish that work. And God, I know that we are a church of people who continue to um, be worked on by you. And so God, I know that there's still uh, sinful tendencies here in our church and uh, sins that have to be fought against. And for some of us, sins that have to be confessed regularly. Um, God, I pray that you'd give us the grace to extend forgiveness and to recognize when true repentance is happening. And God, help us to realize when, when sin is being brought into the church and maybe repentance isn't true, that we'd be able to fight against that because we certainly want to protect other people in our church because, God, we recognize that it's, it, it's, it's promised that temptation is going to come, but woe to the person who allows the temptation to come through them. And so, Father, we certainly want to protect our people from uh, unconfessed and unrepentant sin that would lead other people astray as well. God, help us to be people who pursue reconciliation. As you convict us about relationships in our life that are broken, whether it's our fault or not, God, I pray that we would take the initiative realizing that you've forgiven a multitude of our sins and we certainly have the obligation to forgive others as many times as needed as as you've told us in Scripture through Jesus. So God, I pray that we'd be faithful to do that. Um, Help us to apply your word. We don't want to simply be hearers of sermons every week. We want to be doers of your word. So God, we ask that you'd help us to do the things that we've heard today, to extend grace and to reconcile where needed. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.